Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant Podcast. We have in the studio today uh, a good old friend of mine, a colleague for the time being at National Review. Are you a senior writer? Senior writer, National Review Online. Okay. These are Jesuitical distinctions these days. Yes. And uh, you are the – oh, I'm sorry. You are Michael Brendan Doherty. Yes. Welcome. And you have a new book out, My Father Left Me Ireland. An American Son's Search for Home. Now, I have I have some. Um, I'm going to press you on various things in a little bit, but first of all, let me just say it is a it is a lovely book, and I mean that in not in not a condescending way, like oh, those are lovely shoes or something, right? <laughs> it's a, it's it's a lovely book in that it is is clearly written from a perspective of love, of a search for love, of trying to put meaning into love, and one of the things that makes it a little bit of a challenge for us, which we were just saying off mic, is that. Part of the conceit of it, again, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, part of the idea of it is to show rather than tell. Yeah. So it's very evocative. You have to sort of draw meaning out of it rather than have you hit over the head with it. But before I keep giving any more liner notes or cliff notes for this thing, why don't you actually tell us what the book's about? So, uh, yeah, thank you, Jonah. My Father Left Me Ireland. I like to say it's a book about the connection between homes and the homeland within which they sit. So or Broken Homes and Broken Homelands. And so it's written as a series of letters to my father and written as I was becoming a father. And in many ways, it's the most kind of universal story of all, right? It's about how having children changes our attitudes to our parents and what they gave us. And it's a common story in a way of growing up in a home, leaving that sense of home, and then finding it again. The twist, I suppose, is that I was raised in a fatherless home. And my father was in Ireland throughout my childhood. And I was raised in New Jersey. And my mother, heartbroken both for me and for herself in this situation, turned to Irish culture and Irish nationalism. She was Irish-American. My father is Irish. And, you know, filled my kind of young life and nursery with songs and stories and artifacts of Ireland and even the politics of Irish nationalism as they existed in New York in the 1980s. The book describes, in a sense, how these things started to, even when I wasn't aware that they were doing this, started to bind my emotions and imagination to this to this country that I wasn't actually in. Uh, and then I, I kind of go on this journey of I, I talk about becoming a teenager in the 1990s and how the education system I was in and the kind of peers I was put within tended to derationalize this idea of a nation and you know even liberate me from it uh, because it found these ideas kind of dangerous and oppressive uh, you know and I refer to how this kind of education tried to turn me into one of Nietzsche's last man <laughs> a consumer you know who's obsessed with health and safety and status but it's also a book about how as I was becoming a father I I found I was doing the same things my mother did, which was getting back to these roots because having children has a way of turning a last man into the previous man, mm-hmm. um, quite literally. And it helps you to recover this capacity of uh, connecting with your history. And so really the book is a, a romance of fatherhood and nation. And it's, you know, if a literary critic was looking at it as a work of fiction, he would say that it's it's literally structured like a romance where – I'm narrating the story of my father and I um, both longing for each other uh, and missing each other and miscommunicating until late in the book. (laughs) Uh, I won't spoil it too much. The big reveal. 
So it's funny. You're a not quite sui generis, but you're a idiosyncratic champion of nationalism. Yeah, but not of the nationalism that almost anybody's actually talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, why don't you just sort of you know give your version of of nationalism? Why you were drawn to it? You know, in a uh, as a source of meaning from afar, um, yeah. but also what it means, what what today you think nationalism should be understood as. Yeah. So, you know, I've said in columns that nationalism is – the politics of nationalism are a kind of irritated form of national loyalty. They're like when – normally national loyalty is kind of a given. It's, um, you know, it's this way your your affections – and your impulses are bound up with your uh, country and it's the way that neighbors live together in peace under – in a shared territory, share laws. Uh, but that when – my idea of nationalism is that when that common inheritance or that common treasury is threatened in some way, that impulse, which is very deep and pas- and can be very passionate uh, even if most of the time it's it's pacific in nature – uh, suddenly erupts and you have this irritated nationalist movement that comes out of it um, that tries to recover um, and restore that sense of national loyalty. Now, I mean, that can be very divisive in democracies and it has been and it will continue to be. But it's also something that runs counter and the, and the, the book in a way – contrasts the the era I grew up in and the kind of came of age in, in the 1990s where we had this kind of idea of, well, nations are dissolving, history is ending in a, in a kind of way, conflict is going to be at the edges of the world, but it's, it's gradually going away. And all this nationalism stuff is just dangerous. And what I found, I remembered for my youth was that nationalism as i knew it was also it was it was certainly dangerous mm-hmm. um you know the 1980s in new york you know when you're putting money into flat caps for the widows and orphans of west belfast <laughs> you know you know what that money is really going for um although in reality it's probably being completely gobbled up by whitey bulger before it ever gets <laughs> to belfast but uh <laughs> You know, I knew nationalism was dangerous, but it was also um, something that could inspire real self-sacrifice. And uh, what I connect in the book is that there's um, a way in which our attempt to, uh, you know, liberate ourselves from all the taboos, all, you know, all religion, all the claims of nationality also liberates you in a way to abandon your family and and abandon all uh, kind of civil society along with it. if it runs counter to your immediate self-interest and nationalism is a way of calling you back and it, it can do so. And I, and I looked at these Irish nationalists from a hundred years ago and I saw their capacity to imagine a better future for their country. And it included self-sacrifice on behalf for the future which in a way felt very countercultural and dangerous to me and uh, exciting. So, yeah, I, I kind of wanted to present this as the imaginative world I've, I've kind of operated in and show how it works. Um, and in many ways, it's, it's, it's pre-political, right? Like, you know, an academic would look at the book and say, oh, you know, you're 
what you're really presenting here is kind of Cicero's idea of piety before the past mm-hmm. and thankfulness for it. But so – and this is not something else we were saying off mic. It's like it is not – it's not the kind of book that makes itself vulnerable to the – hyper-rational critique because you were simply laying bare your own emotional states. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, and, and it, uh, there is no authority I can appeal to that is higher than your own testimony about your own emotional states. Right, right yeah, yeah. Um, but, okay, so, but, right, so the neighborhood that you were living in, it was mostly Irish and Italians, right? Yeah, in Bloomfield, New Jersey, it was, it was, um, yeah, I mean, I, I've joked my conception of America when I was a kid was like, well, there's uh, Irish people, Italian people, and Jews, here and then, and um, there's blacks in Newark, New Jersey, and then somewhere down south there are Baptists, right. and like that's what America is. Yeah. Um, and it's natural that Baptists should be down south because it's hotter, it's closer to hell, um, <laughs> you know. Um, so they're 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 getting ready. Um, but uh, yeah. So, but my, I guess what I'm getting at though is that. Part of the sustenance that you drew from, so the spiritual sustenance or the the sustenance of meaning for one yeah yeah that you because you were always a good Catholic during all of this too well I I I mean you were always a Catholic yeah yeah I was (laughs) I was basically a Catholic throughout uh, with a little you know detour in in high school age into Hinduism well a little bit of dabble in in evangelical Protestantism Uh and uh, and atheism but Uh like every twelve year old is atheist so that's fine. Sort of why the golden age of science fiction is sixteen. Yeah, <laughs> um, and um, but my point is, my, what I'm trying to get at though is that this was not an attempt to find, or was it, attempt to find meaning in in Irishism from the people actually around you, right? This is a little bit of your own private Idaho kind of thing. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, we were in the early in the eighties. You know, my mother would have been immersed a little bit more in. Uh, a community of Irish people uh, that were around. You know, we went to cultural festivals that were Irish cultural festivals in New Jersey and New York where you'd have traditional music, dancing, language, et cetera. Uh, we went to like little retreat houses in rural New York where you would try to learn and speak the Irish language and you'd mostly fail and just drink Guinness and talk politics. And, you know, and of course we'd visit Ireland occasionally. Mm-hmm. And so all of that had a, had an effect on kind of binding my imagination and, um, you know, obviously the absence of my father, just knowing my father was overseas and, you know, I would see him every couple of years and, you know, throughout my childhood there was always, you know, maybe we'll go there, maybe you'll – maybe I'll go there for summers or right. or whatever. So it was always this live possibility of I'm actually going to be a part of this country in some way. And yeah, it just felt like, – in the neighborhood I grew up in, it felt like – you know, everyone had a something hyphen America. Mm. It was like you're. There were Filipinos too. You know, yeah. Filipino Americans. But okay, so I guess you know one of the things you talk about a lot is how you beat the. I just you talk about a lot. One of the things that comes out is how you you basically beat the cliches about what it means to be fatherless, right? The the oh the, yeah yeah the social pathologies that come from being fatherless. The 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 problems you get at school, the problems you have with your career, not getting an education. There are all these things that are associated with fatherlessness that you are an outlier of, right? Yeah. I mean, unless I was supposed to be president of the United States and, and this is my <laughs> and this is my form of failure. Um, uh, so, I, I, so part of what I'm getting at is, is uh, for a long time, 
you know, I've gotten a lot of mileage, as a lot of conservatives have, out of the life of Julia stuff. Yeah, right? yeah. And part of my argument has long been, and with obvious thousand, truly millions of counterexamples, notwithstanding that you're it's you're somewhere in that cluster of counterexamples, but part of my argument has been that the and it's very much a Yuval Levin argument too, is that as the state grows, the state actually encourages atomization, yeah. right? It's hostile to competing sources of authority. And so in the Life of Julia cartoon, you have Julia and at every stage of her life, the state is providing all of the things that the family used to provide. Um, right. Part of my argument is, has been sort of via Robert Nisbet and others is that that we all have this innate desire for community, right? We're, yeah. It's been called the quest for community. It's the desire to be part of something, part of a group, part of a tribe, part of a family, part of a community, whatever you want to call it. And the pitch that the sort of progressive technocratic government sells all of the time and that conservative technocratic government sometimes sells is this idea that the government can do that for you, that it can love you. Ooh, yeah. And so the example I always use is, is from the Democratic Convention in 2012 that opened with the line in this video, the government is the one thing we all belong to, oh, right? And for people like us, that's super creepy. Yeah, yeah. But there are millions of people out there who hear something I can belong to because their communities are deracinated, their families are broken up. They are not having their, their hunger for meaning and belonging satisfied from traditional outlets. They don't lose the hunger. They just look for it elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. And so one of the things I thought was sort of interesting is, is that you're growing up in a father's home. Clearly, your mother loved you, but there were obvious issues with your dad not being there. And instead of looking to the state, you were kind of looking to Ireland. To yeah, right. Yeah. Well, in a sense, yeah, it was like we it, – it, it's an interesting thing, right? My grandparents, my my maternal grandparents, you know, I kind of say that the Irish and hyphen was sort of fading away. Mm -hmm. and, and I kind of have this, you know, arch observation that my, my grandmother sang – Bing Crosby tune to Ralu Ralu which is <laughs> an Irish lullaby that was written in Detroit. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so there was this kind of kitschy element to their identity. And then my mother, really because she fell in love with an Irishman and, and had, and also had this Irish American identity, threw herself into this in the 1980s. And yeah, I, you know, I never would have thought. At the time, however, that I was looking to the Irish state or something. No, like no, that no, no, the state, but to Ireland, right? But, but to the to the nation, to the the idea of the nation. And there was, you know, when you're sitting as a young kid in Queens at someone's house, and you're sitting in that house because they're they're Irish, and they just came in off the boat. They've emigrated because Ireland in the '80s was going through a really rough time, and you just feel this. You're there because someone else is Irish and you know them and they want you to meet this person and incorporate this person into this existing community of support. That definitely seemed to me as in retrospect, like this is a source of strength mm -hmm. and stability and meaning that allows us to start caring for each other and, um, and supporting each other. Uh, you know, not every project we were involved in necessarily was to the good. Um, but you know, there's kind of a funny disjuncture between, you know, my mother would have been very supportive of, like, we want to wring concessions from the British government about mm -hmm. Northern Ireland, whereas my father, living in Ireland, had a bit more of a realistic view of right. of, of the, the troubles than Irish Americans did. 
Well, see, but this is this is one of the things I wanted to get to, which is that there's a long history of it's a very common thing, and I wasn't saying that you were married to Irish statism. Right? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Of course. But my point is, is that who could be <laughs> <laughs> um, that that? Nor do I think that the people who are persuadable from for, with the phrase "government is the one thing we all belong to." Nor do I think that they're actually really excited about specific technocratic policy proposals. It's more of being caught up in an idea, yeah. you know, cause larger than yourself, as the cliche goes, right? Yeah. And that gives you a source of meaning. And that's one of the things that identity does, is it gives you meaning exterior to your own accomplishments or your own positions. It makes you part of a greater chain of being, yeah. right? And so one of the problems I've always had... So I'll just lay my cards on the table. It's interesting. You're an advocate of benign nationalism for want of a different phrase and you're sort of semi-associated with that the book is sort of being written up a little bit as a thing about national identity and nationalism and all the rest and yet the reality of the book is very much in keeping with with sort of my own view of things which is that a more fulfilling and happy life is one with staggered identities yeah and different identities you read the book and it turns out no no you're not defining yourself as an irish dude you're defining yourself as a man or a boy, uh, depending on the point in the book, um, who is trying to fill out the portfolio of his soul in a certain yeah, way, right? Exactly. And when you become a father, all of a sudden you're like, holy crap, being a dad is this shockingly meaningful thing. And yeah. this is something I always try to tell people is that you really can divide the world into people who have kids and people who don't have kids because you really don't get it. You can get it intellectually and you can get it kind of emotionally if you've grown up raising nephews and whatever, but there's just something different, that a switch that flips. When you have your own kid, you become so much more other-oriented in a way yeah. that, you know, and that's why the the big leap is from zero to one, not not from four to five or whatever. Right, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, those are logistical problems, but the metaphysical switch is from zero to one. And... And so, you know, I'm partial. I don't think you are. I'm partial to to Orwell's essay, Notes on Nationalism. Yeah, yeah. And I've often argued, and people have really gotten mad at me about it, and I never understood why, that what he was really doing is it's one of the first guys to identify what would become known as identity politics, mm. which he was saying, he even admits in the beginning of the essay, he says, nationalism is the wrong word for what I'm describing, but it's the best word we've got right now. Right. And he goes on to say, it's this tendency to divide the universe between us and them, to reduce people to abstract political units that tell you, that tell you, allegedly tell you everything that you need to know about them. And it's a reductionist approach. And the nationalism that you're talking, the role nationalism plays in here isn't reductionist. It's something else. Yeah. I mean, and what I'm looking for, and, and I have criticisms of Orwell's essay, but um, although I acknowledge it, right? I, I, I even acknowledge it in that observation I made before about my mother could more easily support, you know, the provisional IRA from mm -hmm. America than my father could, right? And he talks about this idea of transferred nationalism mm -hmm. where, you know, it's easier for G.K. Chesterton to romanticize French nationalism. Because uh, right. he's not familiar at all with the costs it imposes, but yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, one of the things I do in the book is, you know, and, and you would, you know, you have to read the book in a, in a sense to get this. Is I'm having children 
and have this impulse to connect with Ireland the way my mother did when she had me. I'm also doing this at a time exactly when Ireland is kind of commemorating the 100th anniversary of some of these momentous events in their own history, uh, namely the 1916 Easter Rebellion. And what was interesting to me at the time and, and is kind of throughout the book is I'm looking at the figures involved in that rebellion, uh, a historian, Owen McNeil, a school teacher, Patrick Pierce, you know, language activist, Eamon Kant, uh, labor activist, James Conley. And what I'm I contrast in the in the in the book is their view, uh, their worldview versus the worldview I was raised in and what their worldview, their view of what Ireland is or could become. It summons them to acts of sacrifice and to acts of, of also just toil and work. And so, um, you know, in some ways, uh, very attentive inside baseball readers will pick up that I kind of contrast Owen McNeil with Ta-Nehisi Coates. Mm -hmm. I don't name Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, but there's some things I do with the language in the book that would indicate I'm talking about him. And... You know, I I suggest that McNeil is facing a similar problem that Coates confronts in his book about this idea of confronting a history of shame and plunder and expropriation. And, you know, this this historian McNeil, his response is to be a great historian of his nation, to to take up all of this work of restoring a sense of dignity and self-knowledge to, to his nation and to work himself to the bone, right? It, he doesn't indulge in despair, and then also potentially to, to take up arms in defense of his nation. And, um, you know, I contrast the way uh, Patrick Pierce conceived of education in his school, St. Enda's, which was like in many ways like a nationalist uh, school for boys with my own education. And I find that in, in effect, his his view of education was directly contrary to mine and, and explicitly so. Like he 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 viewed the British education system as a way of making – of taming Ireland and making it um, – you know, in a sense, I draw the parallel where the English education system in Ireland that Pierce detested made Irish history kind of absent for Irish people and Irish saints, Irish heroes, Irish legends – it absented them. And, and I kind of say that runs parallel to my own education, which sort of takes American history or any nation's history and rewrites it, revises it until it becomes entirely, hate, you know, a record of hatefulness and uh, – The Howard Zinn version. Yeah, that yeah. we have to escape from and that, you know, we're just we're, – we're on the cusp of liberating ourselves from the, this demonic history that um, informs us. So, yeah, I wanted to embrace I, – I, I found myself resonating deeply with their view and this idea of being summoned out of yourself to do something greater, to do something greater with your life. Uh, and I, you know, in a sense, I'm contrasting that with an education through the culture and through even my schooling that sort of said, no, you – that threw me back on myself and said, no, you're the measure of all meaning. You be true to yourself. Mm -hmm. You do this. And – and I talk about, in a sense, how alienating that actually is mm. and, and how that leaves you stranded and, in a sense, ill-equipped to 
meet the demands that life will place on you. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's something that comes across very much in the book. It also comes across – it's a big part of our, one of the big arguments in The Closing American Mind. Um, also in Patrick Deneen's stuff. I mean there's a lot in Patrick Deneen's stuff that I agree with a lot. It is You have to – sort of like – you know, Seymour Martin Lipset used to say you cannot – understand one country unless you understand two countries yeah because you need to compare it to something right right you need to fill up a national sense of identity and who you are before you can understand someone else's appreciate somebody else's sense of national identity and what our education system tends to do is just deracinate people entirely tell them to cut them off from their roots say your past is something that you need to sort of uh atone for or forget um, yeah, escape from escape so. from right, and you know it, it. It's funny. I kept thinking when I was reading the book. You know, Max Weber had that famous line where he says, "The how does it go? Um, the the central the, the central fact of our time is the disenchantment of the world." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and it looks to me like, like a big chunk of what you're trying to do, and which is what people like. Um, oh, what's his name? I quote him all the time in my book. Um, Ernest Gellner. Thank you, Jack. Uh, Ernest Gellner calls nationalism a re-enchantment creed, right? That right. coming out of the Enlightenment, everything gets disenchanted, rationalized, scrubbed down, sanitary. It's all about dollars and cents or machine thinking, um, technocratic. And our minds want us to live in a more magical world. And so we look for re-enchantment creeds mm. that that give us that sense and some of them are healthy some of them are unhealthy but yeah i mean i would resist i I worry that re-enchantment creeds is another way of derationalizing them and saying like we're delusional and and i try to i mean the book in a sense is a protest against the modern concept uh like i go after what i call the wonks Mm -hmm. conception of the world where you know in a sense a I say the wonk, and I'm being I'm deliberately overstating in the book. But I say the wonk looks at at a nation and says, "Okay, this is a pretty problematic thing, but it's a, a useful administrative unit, and right. if I can capture it, I can do this technical work on society, which I measure in totally utilitarian terms." And you know, in a sense, I I, I am accusing this world I grew up in of letting that style of thinking not only colonize our politics but even colonize the other areas of life where we find ourselves stupidly babbling about fatherhood like a father is like the chief wonk of the family like right. instead of paterfamilias he is like oh okay read to your kid you know if you read to your kid he'll get a better mortgage rate okay now cuddle with your kid because right. he'll be more sociable as if fatherhood were just about passing on material advantage and middle middle class livelihood and then in a sense i'm i'm pointing to myself and saying like well i achieved all that anyway without a father Mm -hmm. and yet i still long for this relationship in my life and similarly like a nation can't be reduced down to just okay well being irish means that you are you fall 13th on the un index right. of nations for gender equality and you fall or they're number 4 now or some ridiculously high stat um you know that there's some other there are aspects of human life that aren't reducible in this way to just like utilitarian metrics mm-hmm. um, so i'm going to push back on that a little bit um sure 
I am first of all, I'm 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 very sympathetic to it. I, I mean to your position on all these things. I I have a and since you're a baseball guy and I'm not, but um I pissed off a lot of friends of mine when I would write on the corner about how I never wanted the curse of the Bambino to be lifted. Because I just I like I like curses. I mean I really do. I like right, you long, like the idea. Like like someone made a mistake five generations ago and our society is now built up around the idea that they screwed up and it will never I just I like these weird little mystical things in our lives. I think they're cool. And I to me it's disenchantment when they go away. And right, yeah, yeah. because it takes a long time to build them up in the first place to have this meaning in our culture. And then when they go away, oh, so it really just it sabermetrics destroys everything. You know? Right. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And um, so I'm very sympathetic to all that. I was on the flip side. Though. Oh, in some ways, right. Like in some ways, this happened with Irish nationalism, right, is that. You know, as Ireland started achieving more and more of its independence, you know, its poets said, OK, now romantic Ireland is dead. Right. Like, right. In a sense, the romance was nursing this dream that was unrealizable. Right. And, well, it was, but so many cultures are like the Harlem Renaissance. Right. There were so many things that came from an evil segregation that the people who were segregated, the, you know, Jews came up with all sorts of awesome stuff when they were being mistreated <laughs> yeah, yeah. because suffering is you know there's a, there is that thing about suffering being good for the soul it forms co social cohesion it forms this sort of micro-nationalism sense of community that you're talking about and then all of a sudden when you're liberated you're like now what do i do with myself and all of a sudden instead of the social solidarity you're looking towards now i just got to go to work you know <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. it becomes much more bourgeois and much less romantic at the same time that is not an argument for causing more suffering in the world right right yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> and yeah. but so on the on the thing about fathers i i agree with you entirely that family is this you know i mean i'm not gonna say corpus mysticum but it's this neat unique and i talk about the, the hayekian microcosm all of the time that the family works on irrational rules that are pre-political pre-democratic you know um as a friend of mine likes to say in his family uh you know, his family is a dictatorship and he's the dick, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and at the same time, I'm very sympathetic to – or I have my sympathies for what you're dismissing as the rationalization of, of wonkishness. Irving Kristol, who was a hero of mine, always used to – I shouldn't say always. I've heard, I had heard him say that one of the things that neoconservatism was good for was that – by introducing sociology and social science into conservatism, it helped prove that most of the things your grandmother used to say were right. <laughs> yeah, and and in a in a journalistic culture where you have where you tell people, hey, look, kids don't just go take care of themselves. That it you have to have some investment. You have to make, you know, I I, I often tell people, qu uh, quality time is bullshit. Right, that it's quantity time. You need to be around your kids because you don't know when special moments come, and you don't know what oh, yeah, they're going to yeah. remember, and all that kind of stuff. And telling people, "Hey, look, I know everyone's busy. Every, you have all these things, um, but these kids aren't self-cleaning and self-sustaining. There's some things that your parents did for you that had real value, and explaining to them that there is a practical value to it is not the end of the world. And I don't think anybody that needs to be told that their kid will have a better shot at getting into harvard if they read to them when they're kids it's probably a pretty crappy already crappy parent already right um, yeah 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 but it could at the margins tell parents err on the side of reading to them more 
or don't write off these little things because they aren't little things. No, it's no, that's all true. And uh, listen, some of the listen, some of the wonk anti wonkism of the book is a little bit of me fighting for a corner of saying, okay, uh, you know, there's some overstatement there because I'm fighting for writers in the, in the life of a Republic like the America or Ireland that, um, social science isn't the only uh, qualification for getting in. Cause frankly, uh, you know, I I think people that are informed by history, by literature, by I, religion, I agree entirely. Still have something to contribute, and I worry though that like there's been a, you know, even if you look at if you look at all the public interest magazines, right? Even National Review is much wonkier now mm-hmm. than it was in the '70s or '60s. That's uh, true, and um, and some of that is is I'll grant a total bonus, but uh, you know, in a sense, like. I'm fighting for my corner and uh, and not only my own corner, but, the, you know, plenty of other writers who want to speak into the life of their nation uh, from a position informed by something other than social science. Yeah. No, I'm so, 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 yeah, like I, I, I definitely kind of bring the thunder and fire for, mm-hmm. uh, for the wonks in the book. But I do have, you know, I, I invoke, um, you know, just like I evoke Coates in one chapter, I am evoking, you know, Francis Fukuyama's mm-hmm. book, The End of History and the Last Man, in, in the book as well. And first of all, you know, the book is one of the most misunderstood books in the last 40 years. The Fukuyama book. Yeah. Fukuyama yeah, yeah, I agree. Book. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of people from my side of the conservative world kind of either never read it or never really engaged with it and thought it was like some post-Cold War triumphalist. Right book that you know a mandate for neoconservative foreign policy but it's not it's actually a brilliant book that's much more discomforting than that and you know it's about this idea of the triumph of liberal, liberal democracy and the emergence of nietzsche's last men at the end of it and i i want to just quote a little bit from it here because sure. like to give the body to this so it's he's fukuyama's talking in the latter part of the book about the kind of citizens that liberal democracies create he said, um, uh, liberal democracies, quote, do not tell their citizens how they should live or what will make them happy, virtuous, or great. Instead, they cultivate the virtue of toleration, which becomes the chief virtue in democratic societies. And if men are unable to affirm that any particular way of life is superior to another, they will fall back on the affirmation of life itself, that is, the body, its needs, its fears. While not all souls may be equally virtuous or talented, all bodies can suffer. Hence, democratic societies will tend to be compassionate and raise to the first order of concern the question of preventing the body from suffering. It's not an accident that people in democratic societies are preoccupied with material gain and live in an economic world devoted to the satisfaction of the myriad small needs of the body. And he, he goes on to talk about how, like in a sense, even more, our moral reasoning can become corrupted because it, if if equality and toleration are the highest virtues, it becomes much harder to have moral arguments because you're saying someone devoted to another moral good may be uh, unequal to your you and right the moral good you're pursuing you know and he said you know and he gives an example in america we feel entitled to criticize another person's smoking habits but not his or her religious or moral behavior and that is kind of like the formation i was trying to describe in this book that i was given through the culture mm-hmm. through its pop culture through 
um, my schooling. And it's a formation that I think what I'm trying to imply in some ways in the book, and like I said, this is done almost by implication, is that the last man that Fukuyama is describing here is Which is very much Nietzsche's last man. Yeah, Nietzsche's last man isn't just morally kind of shallow and self-obsessed. I'm implying also he's fundamentally barren, mm-hmm. right? So that this attempt to liberate yourself from all the nasties of the past, which in re- reality becomes an attempt to just blacken everything in the past, mm-hmm. ends up cutting you off also from the future, mm-hmm. right? Not only because the future will then pour the same obloquy on you and say everything that you did and everything that you lived and believed was worthless, but also because it just demotivates you from doing the thing, creating children, which right. is hard work and right. requires sacrifice and a, and a willingness to suffer that I think our society makes us terrified of. And so, you know, the book is about me becoming a father and I have this little, my little daughter in my lap and I start like thinking, I'll sing to her my, the songs my mother sang and these kind of Irish nationalist ballads. And then I start reading uh, Patrick Pierce and others and, you know, he privileges sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, in some ways that was um, what people hate about him in modern Ireland, right? Because the critique of Pierce and and these guys in Ireland became, well, you created this mandate for endless war against Britain. Mm -hmm. uh, And that, um, I mean, Owen McNeil even talked about uh, the hunger strikers in uh, the 1920s. And, you know, he said, uh, it's not the country who inf- who uh, inflicts the most pain. It's those who suffer the most that will win in, the, win in a conflict, mm-hmm. those willing to suffer the most. Now, th- I believe that can be taken to extremes, but I think we're, we're on the opposite end of the pendulum where uh, this attempt at liberation for ourselves personally has ended up disconnecting us and leaving us marooned, both from our history, which can be this source of comfort, consolation, and this mm-hmm. repository of our loves and can give us a conscience uh, and pass on to us the, the valuable things in our tradition, but then also from the future. And, you know, my implication is that, uh, you know, um, having children as children as um, something uh, inviolate um, will change us. And actually, actually let me read. I want to read one more thing, and then I'll let uh, I want you to comment. So this is uh, Pierce's essay, Ghosts, and he's talking about the previous generation uh, in Ireland, and he says that there's there's nothing more terrible in Irish history than the failure of the last generations. Other generations have failed in Ireland, but they have failed nobly, or failing ignobly. Some man among them has redeemed them from infamy by the splendor of his protest. But the failure of the last generation has been mean and shameful, and no man has arisen from it to say or do a splendid thing in virtue of which it shall be forgiven. The whole episode is squalid. It will remain the one sickening chapter in a story which, gallant or sorrowful, has everywhere else some exaltation of pride. And he kind of continues this condemnation of his previous generation, saying they're bankrupt in policy, bankrupt in credit. And he says, one finds oneself wondering what sin these men have been guilty of that so great a shame should come upon them. 
is it that they punish uh, that they are punished with loss of manhood because in their youth they committed a crime against manhood? Even had the men themselves been less base, their failure would have been inevitable. When one thinks over the matter for a little time, one sees that they have built upon an untruth. They have conceived of nationality as a material thing, whereas it, whereas it is a spiritual thing. They have made the same mistake that a man would make if he were to forget that he has an immortal soul. They have not recognized in their people the image and likeness of God. Hence, the nation to them is not all holy, a thing inviolate and inviolable, a thing a man dare not sell or dishonor on pain of eternal perdition. They have thought of nationality as a thing to be negotiated about, as men negotiate about a tariff or about a trade route, rather than as an immediate jewel to be preserved at all peril, a thing so sacred that it may not be brought into the marketplaces at all or spoken of where men traffic. Now, okay, one, he's a pretty gorgeous writer, mm -hmm. but he's, he's urging himself in his own writing, I, I tend to think, to do something that a kind of dandy school teacher and intellectual normally wouldn't do, which is pick up a gun and start fighting mm -hmm. in a, in a rebellion. But the contrast between the kind of man that Pierce prizes as someone who is willing to die for his nation is very different from the last man mm -hmm. that uh, Nietzsche is describing and so, yeah, I'm I'm implying that uh, a nation, the conscience of our nation, will be returned to us when we invest in and welcome in uh, posterity again. Yeah. And my worry is that, like, we have a uh, uh, we're creating a culture in which one we're not having that many children, and two, a lot of the children we're having, fathers aren't around, mm -hmm. not actually investing in them, and and. In a sense, that fatherlessness, uh, both as a material fact and as um, a social reality for the children we do have, uh, primes them toward this uh, almost vengeful attitude towards their past and towards their history. And so, yeah, and this book is an attempt to describe, okay, I had children and suddenly I found, you know, my home – my childhood home almost being rebuilt and, and a way to connect with my father, even though he was absent. Um, anyway, sorry, so, that's no, a long no, rant. No, no, it was good. It was good. Um, I, I, I enjoyed it. I, so I have, I have a bunch of things. First of all, maybe we can find the audio because I think I, I, I almost, I almost weep that it didn't happen in time for you to put it in the book, but there's this line from, or at least in your talking points when you go around on a book tour, Kamala Harris was on Morning Joe when she announced her, candidacy and someone asked some you know can we ever unite this country again yeah blah, yeah blah, blah, blah. and i've seen her now say it several different times and she's said it in written form too she said oh you know we still we are still connected i'm an optimist because we're we're connected by so much more there's so much more that unites us than it divides us and then she goes on this stream of consciousness where she says you know it's not just Republicans and Democrats who wake up in the middle of the night wondering if they're going to have a secure retirement. It's not just Republicans or Democrats who <laughs> yeah. worry about paying their student loans, right? Yeah, policy and, de deliverables. Yeah, it's, it's policy deliverables. And then it's like worried that they're going to get sick. And, you know, she was, she was describing a sense of a definition of social solidarity that is only one or two clicks above 
we are all united by the fact that we're carbon-based life forms, right? And that yeah, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was yeah. purely sanitized of any sort of notion of actual nationality, of culture, and any of these things. And it's one of these things that drives me crazy about the way, in particular, the left talks about national unity. They want national unity, but they're terrified of the word nationalism. And what yeah. they're synonymous terms. It's, it's sort of like my beef about socialism versus nationalism, which are very similar things in the economic realm, not in the sort of poetic. Yeah, can be, yeah, yeah. Not in the poetic realm that you're just sort of talking about or the spiritual realm that you're talking about. So there's that. In reaction to the second thing. And it's a strong drought of romantic nationalism. Yeah, I, I, I can't go there. I think it is absolutely imperative that, that, uh, that any nation, when pressed with a true existential threat of some kind or, a, or even just a very serious threat, should have the kind of fellow feeling that he's talking about to some extent, right? The idea of sacrificing yourself for others, sacrificing yourself for a cause, these things are important. Right. Like I have to – like on some level under the correct circumstances, right, for a nation to uh, preserve itself into the future – I have to be willing or my children have to be willing to kill and die for Bernie Sanders kids. Right. Or grandkids. And uh, this is know. one of the this is one of the great mistakes. It was really kind of fascinating that he was the one who made it. In Dinesh's book, uh, Enemy at Home, which I thought I gave a very critical review of in the Claremont Review of Books ten years ago, and turns out it was one of the friendliest because this was back in a different time. But he basically made this argument that Americans should have uh, we should, the American conservatives should form an alliance with Muslim conservatives against our own left and the the people who are destroying our own culture, Ooh. including like crazy imams in Egypt who were like chanting death to America kind of stuff uh, because they are standing for cultural orthodoxy and tradition and so are we. And part of my argument was, you know, count me out. In situations like this, you really bring out the Irish in me in the sense that <laughs> yeah. I can criticize my brother, but if you're telling me that Ted Kennedy has to die for the good of Allah, then you got to go through me first, right? I mean, there, there should be that sense so that yeah, yeah. intra-family Americans can have knockdown, drag-out fights, but there's something that unites us all. I agree with all of that. At the same time, I, and I was just telling my daughter this the other day, that you have to like look at – there are lots of things that we – as human beings extol as goods, which are not necessarily good. doesn't mean they're bad, but, you know, I just wrote a G-file about this the other day about unity, national unity. National unity is fine when national unity is required. Yeah. Um, unity in and of itself is neither good nor bad. Um, right. Unity is right. a... For what? It's a... You're, exactly. Unity, like, the fascism was was literally a cult of unity. It was a bundle of sticks around an act that acts that meant... That's what the fascists, what the fascists were, and it symbolized strength in numbers. And we have a genetic evolutionary compulsion to to favor unity. We think because it's a survival mechanism. But rape gangs are unified, right? The mafia is unified. That's what you know. That's what is the organizing principle of the mafia is to be unified. Unity in and of itself is like fire. It can be used constructively or destructively, and it depends what you want to use it for. Same thing with loyalty. And so what I don't like about the quote that you read is that I'm much more of a Chestertonian on this. Is like no man would say his country, you know, my country is always right. It's like saying my mother, you know, my, my, my country right or wrong. It's like saying my mother drunk or sober. Um, yeah. My and this and so this teases out, you know, this argument that happens a lot on on our side of the fence when nationalism comes up about the differences between nationalism and patriotism. Um, Rich Lowry, our friend. Yeah handsome man, powerful man, um, editor of National Review, 
Uh, he's working on a book about nationalism. Uh, he hates, maybe hates too strong a word. He finds inconvenient and sometimes questions the authenticity of the line often ascribed to William F. Buckley that Buckley said something along the lines of, um, I'm as patriotic as anybody. I rise on the 4th of July. I'll sing Yankee Doodle Dandy, yada, yada, yada. But there's not an ounce of nationalism in me. Mm. And Rich, who is in part because he's working on this book about nationalism, is somewhat invested in the idea that there really is no distinction between patriotism and nationalism. Uh -huh. And um, uh, I'm wondering where do you come down on the distinction between these two things? Because this is one of the things which causes people to talk way past each other yes. a lot. And, I, and, and Probably possibly caused you and Rich to talk past each other. Yeah, no, that's right. And, <laughs> and, 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 and when, if Rich wants to define patriotism and nationalism as the same thing, I may disagree with him, but I'm perfectly willing to work with the terms that he's working with and say, okay, you're not making that distinction. I won't either for the purposes of this conversation. But I actually think there is a distinction there. I'm just wondering if you do. Um, I, um, yeah, as I was saying toward the beginning, I think I, I make this distinction of, um, I think of national loyalty as something somewhat unique to the West, um, somewhat part of our Christian Judeo-Christian inheritance, even though that word is now um, white supremacist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, you and Ben Shapiro and other members of the alt right just keep talking about that Judeo-Christian heritage. <laughs> so I think the you know I think of national. I, I talk about national loyalty is um, in good conditions would be the existing peace between neighbors and their their ability and willingness to share the national territory together and endeavor to live under the same laws, um, right? We have territory, we, we in the West, we especially prize territorial based forms of loyalty and that'll be connected with language and culture in a way. Um, whereas like maybe in Islamic civilization, you have this, I think you would have this higher call of the Ummah that, that often supersedes um, right. your national loyalty and it, it gives the kind of particular flavor of, you know, criticism that, uh, muftis and other uh, Islamic clerics offer to the sultan or the right. Well, Muhammad even says somewhere in the Quran, "Don't be one of these people who says I am so and so of such a place." Yeah, right. He wants you to be Muslim everywhere, but you know the Catholic Church kind of does some of that some, too, right? somewhat. Although, like, there's kind of a theology in in Christianity where the um, where God uh, judges both individuals and nations, and so mm -hmm. there's this idea of there's a providential concern for nations in the Bible that. Um, brings in the mysterium mm -hmm. uh, in the great mystery um the good of the nation and the good of individual souls is not ultimately in in conflict um the true good of a nation not necessarily how uh you know mussolini would define the nation mm -hmm. but um so national loyalty is is this endeavor to live in a territory together with shared loyalty and then my view is that nationalist politics arise in the presence of some arousal or irritation that touches on that deep, almost pre-political passion. Um, and so nationalist politics um, come about in war uh, is the most obvious example. But they could also come about in uh, an ambition for new territory or an irredentist claim in you know Northern Ireland or manifest destiny in America involved nationalist passions or the maladministration of the napoleonic regime in parts of germany yes yeah. exactly um it can come about in in an irritation of um 
political interference, right? I mean, you're seeing on the left, you're seeing this kind of splurge of anti-Russianism that's tinged with American nationalism because right. they think uh, Russia violated America's uh, independence in, in choosing its own president. Um, so where you get a big irritant to national loyalties. So, for instance, in Kiev, you have this in Ukraine, you have this big irritant in Moscow. And so you get lots of nationalism in the Ukraine. And, and my idea is this is like a fever, which can be both either fatal or curative. Mm-hmm. Um, that nationalist politics will be um, fatal or curative uh, of of the thing it's addressing. And my own view is that um, a conservative, as I am, who's attuned to this national aspect, in times of peace, he will attend to he will tend to the the nation itself, like. You would a garden, mm-hmm. you know, you wouldn't attack a garden, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you wouldn't say, oh, I want to, um, do something a little different here. Let me like carpet bomb it with agent orange or something really <laughs> aggressive. Um, you would, uh, prune prudently. Mm-hmm. So, so that's kind of how I view, I view, um, nationalism is, is that there is a base level of national loyalty and you want to attend to that. Um, you know, in times of peace, contributions to the nation can be are totally consonant with individual goods, right? Like Mark Twain's books are an amazing American achievement, but they weren't written to be like Americana exactly. Although many, although we have to say many, many novelists do have this idea in their head of like, I want to write the great uh, novel for my country. Um, So where does patriotism figure into all of this? Um, Patriotism is, um, I I think of it as the, the, the sentiments that bind you to your country. Mm -hmm. I think of, of national loyalty as uh, something a little bit different. I think patriotism uh, in peace is, is probably no different um, than, uh, or it's admixed with national loyalty. So I, I don't think of nationalism as like a full philosophy. Mm-hmm. I think of nationalism as a, as a as like I said a fever, and it takes in hand philosophies to mm-hmm. achieve its purposes. So, you know, in one context, it may if it's trying to establish sovereignty and independence from an empire. If that empire is capitalist, nationalists will tend to go towards a communist uh, right. sponsor or something like that. Um, so nationalisms can be opportunistic. Uh, and I, I, I would want anyone who's looking at nationalism to, um, acknowledge that. So, and, okay. But and so- then, and then, and then lastly, um, nationalism in, in my view, the, the nationalism we're seeing today is, uh, born of two things. One, I think a kind of overweening, uh, uh political orthodoxy that's, that was attempted to be imposed through, Basically, anti-democratic institutions, whether the EU in Europe or um, in the United States, I would say like a bipartisan consensus that was meant to to skirt public opinion mm-hmm. on certain issues like immigration or or trade. And so, I think there's this kind of nationalist impulse to restore the place of democracy. And I think most of the nationalism you see, the you know, people worry that there's this huge trend that's going to totally reorder our politics. I actually think it's just people are going to make an accommodation with it and then it will go away and, mm-hmm. and a different kind of politics will emerge. So, so yeah, I think that fever yeah, so or I, it will break. So, I, I mean, it shouldn't surprise you. I'm much more sympathetic to your treatment of these things than I am to say riches. Um, okay. You know, one, one, I think useful 
illustration of the differences between nationalism and patriotism as you're talking about is, which I've talked about on this podcast before, Thanksgiving is a truly nationalist holiday, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. thanks to God. It's thanks for the food you have, for your family. Yeah, it's connected to the land. It's totally connected to the land. Um, it's got a big Christian thing to it, right? But it's also got this social solidarity thing, even with the Indians, right? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's a holiday that is established before the founding of the United States of America. It is this thankfulness for the providentialness of being in this place, yeah. right? And the 4th of July, on the other hand, is a very patriotic holiday. You read texts. It's you're literally celebrating the signing of a document, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and what makes Fourth of July feel more nationalistic to some people is that there, as always happens with 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 these sorts of sentiments, is that there's a little bit of an overlay of the military stuff in it. And yeah, the, the, and 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 so, but on the on the distinction between nationalism and patriotism. You know, I, I agree it can get blurry, and I certainly think that almost mo that most, if not all, nationalists in America either are or think they are patriots. And most patriotic people in America have a healthier dose of nationalism than they are willing necessarily to always to concede. Yeah. But someone on Twitter pointed out to me the other day, um, in response to my thing with Rich Lowry, one way to think about it in the political realm is that nationalism is a force for trying to overcome any obstacles, right? And that's what you're talking about when you're talking about it'll pick up arguments of convenience to express itself. Um, nationalism is, is, is a tide that is looking for its sort of in a Nietzschean sense, you know, it's overcoming. It wants to achieve something yeah, and, yeah. and it wants to delegitimize constraints on this irritated spirit that you're talking about. Yeah. Patriotism is a constraining force. It's the kind of thing that says that even when your passions are high, the best version of your of this country and its its traditions prevents you from doing certain things. And so the, the analogy I've used for years is that, you know, in the American political, one of the reasons why I don't like nationalism talk in politics, the way you're talking about it in terms of culture and tradition, I'm, I'm very much a traditionalist. I'm entirely with, I mean, I, I have become more Chestertonian over yeah, the yeah, years. Yeah. I've always loved his thing about how tradition is democracy for the dead. Yeah. That we owe a certain amount of fidelity and contractual obligation to the people who came before us because they wanted this country to be a certain kind of country and we need to at least sometimes the answer is no but you should always at least respect the request from the dead and so i'm very sympathetic to all that but in the american political tradition in politics when you talk about nationalism you're talking about the the moral legitimacy and sovereignty of the group and when you're talking about patriotism to me the patriot is the guy who stands up to the mob you know, when Calvin Coolidge says one with the law on his side is a majority, hmm. the our founding documents are all about individual rights and about protecting the freedom of conscience and the freedom of speech and all these kinds of things, even when the group is against them. And that's the way our system was set up. Whether you think I was a mistake or not right, yeah. is a different issue. And so for me, patriotism, yeah, again, in real life, there's an enormous amount of overlap between patriotism and nationalism. But all principles are understood at their testing point. And patriotism, it's very difficult for me to get to an understanding of patriotism that puts 
the demands of the group ahead of the demands of the individual mm. in a way that nationalism automatically does. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I, I'm not sure sometimes because sometimes nationalism bids you to do, you know, nationalist movements do stuff that um, the group, you know, so one of the things that's kind of interesting about the Easter Rising, which I talk about. Like William the, Wallace would be a nationalist according to you. Right. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So like one of the things that, that the people of the Easter Rising did, right, was um, one of the things that's interesting about it is this is set in World War II. Ireland's great national ambition politically for 40 years had been a home rule parliament. We want a, you know, our own parliament within the United Kingdom to be in Dublin, restore our parliament. And the it's passed in 1912, but it has to overcome a check from the House of Lords. So it needs to wait three years and be passed the same way each time. While they're waiting to pass it, um, people are organizing against it extra constitutionally in Ulster and beyond. And then World War II breaks out. And the reaction of the British government to the outbreak of World War II is, oh, thank God we can stop talking about Ireland. For, <laughs> um, I mean, and I mean that really, like Asquith and others literally said stuff like this. Yeah. Like, you know, thank God for war in Europe because we can shut up about Ireland. And what happens is uh, 200,000 Irish men sign up and fight on the Western Front underneath the flag of the United Kingdom of uh, Ireland and Great Britain. And – the, the heroes of the rising preserve this harder form of nationalism of like, we want to establish a, a separate, politically separate, sovereign, indefeasible republic on the island of Ireland. And barely 2,000 of them on this Easter week in 1916 decide to make their uh, mark. And they know they're going to lose. Mm -hmm. And not only do they, you know, lose in a week, you know, after occupying the buildings, the British rush over some troops. Um, and in, on the scale of the war, it's actually a relatively small skirmish, but it is civil war breaking out. You know, they were cursed by the common people mm. of Dublin as traitors, murderers. They were uh, cursed as, you know, in the papers, they were denounced as communists and senseless. And then gradually, though, people realized who they were and what their aims were. And then um, and they were executed one by one. British policy got very confused trying to sometimes be very harsh in some aspects and then placating in others, which actually tended to rile people mm -hmm. up. Um, so in some ways they responded to this by like rushing home rule forward and thus proving that violence gets you what you want. Right. While then also arresting thousands of people who weren't involved as sympathizers and putting them in jails where they radicalized each other. And what they were motivated, motivated by, and there's this moment on Easter Sunday where – the initial plan to start the rising on Sunday of Easter has been botched by miscommunication and a countermanding order from from one of the uh, the people, the Irish Volunteers, and Nora Connolly, uh, James Connolly's daughter, goes up to him while they're kind of deliberating what to do next and says, "Are we not going to fight, Daddy?" And he says, uh, he turns to her and he says. Uh, if we don't fight, we have to hope an earthquake opens up uh, below us to swallow us in our shame. <laughs> and their idea was they had to honor the tradition of Irish history by fighting. Mm -hmm. That there hadn't been a rebellion in their lifetime and they had to to hand on this tradition so that at some point Ireland will be free. And if we, if we don't give up, we'll just be absorbed into it. So – and in some way now, you know – 
you could make a just war argument and say, hey, you had no hope of real success and, um, you know, therefore it's immoral. I would argue that it was just because um, already extra constitutional means had been used to subvert and now they're using their extra constitutional means to achieve their goal. And that, in fact, they did succeed in passing on this tradition and quickly achieved uh, things in for their nation that were thought unachievable, which is the establishment of an Irish state uh, in 1922 and eventually the establishment of a republic. The cost, of course, was the the partition of Ireland, which has been uh, horrible. Source of some controversy. A source of some controversy. <laughs> but then again, right, you get lots of nationalism in Northern Ireland on both sides. One side is called the nationalist side, but a unionist Protestant side and a, an Irish nationalist side because you have two communities of people divided by religion, sharing territory, but they have different loyal different national loyalties one one set of people is loyal to an idea of a united ireland or to irish nationality um and one set is loyal to a, a a union with northern ireland and great britain and it's part of their national identity and one of the reasons it's so tough for them to live together and why they have to have this really unique imposed upon constitutional power sharing system is because they don't agree that they live in the same nation. Right. And, you know, in a sense, that's why national loyalty is so important to guard because when you find that the, these edge cases on the, on the territories, that they, they're very violent. And, um, so you want to attend, I believe conservatives should just want to attend to national, uh, unity, even in times of peace, even when there's not nationalist politics, that, um, that you want to attend to these things because my fear of course is that uh if we if we managed if progressives or or modern liberals managed to actually derationalize the nation what would come back is roaring loyalties of blood mm -hmm. and uh tribe or religion right. and and we and we tear apart the nation it's a, again not to wax chestertonian but you know when you tell people to stop believing in god yeah. Not that they don't believe in anything. It's, the, it's not that they'll believe in nothing. It's that they'll believe in anything. And if you tell people to stop believing that they actually live in a country called the United States of America, you are inviting all sorts of sectarian, tribal, identity politics, yeah. affiliations to fill in the void. And I agree – look, I agree with all of that entirely that yeah. when you, you need healthy sources of meaning or unhealthy sources of meaning will invade. I also believe that nations are, are kind of um, – they're hardy animals in some ways, right? Like they – they can die, right? There are there are nations that die. Are, most of the Native American nations are are functionally dead. They've lost right. their language. They've lost their culture. Most of them are. Most of the nations in the Bible are. Gone. Most of the nations are gone. But many nations survive. They survive. You know, obviously the the paradigmatic one. You're, I can hear Yoram Hazani somewhere behind me. <laughs> you know, a nation can survive captivity. It can survive being incorporated into an empire, and then it can re revive itself and. You know, you, there are some na nations, right, like Hungary, where the national story is like we survived the Turks, right. we survived the Austro-Hungarian Empire, we survived all this, right? And like the the history book that John Lukacs, Lukacs uh, recommends is called like The Will to Survival or something like that. Yeah, but um, I mean, just to push back on that slightly, a lot of those places, you know, and this is part of my problem with the – Hazoni and and Lowry emphasis on biblical nationalism as a concept. It, the the biblical nations 
very much like the American Indians you're talking about, very much like the Irish, very much like certainly the Hungarians, right? They're all supposed to be descendants of one Magyar or yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And you're not so much talking about nations as you're talking about peoples. That there's a and yeah, yeah. and there's a distinction there that you know and so well yeah yeah and so I, I get nations for nations as yeah because sometimes people say nation when they mean people and right sometimes people say nation when they mean like we talk about the Kurdish nation but they don't actually have a nation. actual community that has political borders and right and and that's why I've always thought that so much of Hazoni's and Rich's argument if you were talking about nationism right countryism just the idea of the political unit, the largest political units should be these nation states that come out of the Treaty of Westphalia and that we shouldn't have one world government or we shouldn't have pan-nationalism where we have, you know, like the EU. Fine. But that's not what everyone means by nationalism. Yeah. I mean, so Hazoni and I, so I like Yoram a lot and, um, but he's approaching it from a geopolitical idea of how do you organize state like what's a great way to have the world organized which is okay let's have self-governing independent nation states uh which is a li- i'm addressing a kind of different no i know you are thing right. um i you're kind of talking about a people in some way. i most i most like my personal preferences i agree with i i like yoram's argument as a Christian, as a Catholic, I think the inheritance of the West is always that we're going to – I mean, I, I'm a kind of political fatalist, right? I I believe only uh, the kingdom of God will last forever and reign forever and all nations have an expiry date, even if that might be the end of the world. But in the here and now, in, in the temporal order – in the, in the world as it exists, I think that the sway of history in the West is always going to be between empire and nation and that these are just part of the, the, the inheritance of Christian Christendom and that when empires become dysfunctional, overweening, oppressive and discredited, nations will emerge from – reemerge from them. And then when nations become corrupt, lax and uh, – uh, reprobate in some way they'll be absorbed into a stronger empire near nearby uh like i i just think that that i as a matter of just describing history i think that is what will happen that process will destroy some nations and and other nations will survive or emerge in different forms later so i don't i don't think there's like one like i just don't believe i i'm a i'm a christian i don't believe that there's like a political program that is uh applicable forever in history no i look right like the 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 ship you know the wind the winds of history change and the ship will will have to adjust to them i'm a don't immunitize the eschaton guy yeah Yeah, yeah. i I agree with that but um uh but when i hear you talking about ireland um and um when i hear you talking about the people saying one of the things that i retreat to is american exceptionalism Mm. which um is another one of these phrases that yeah, no one agrees. Yeah, it just drives me crazy how people talk about it. It used to be – I mean vast bodies of literature were written about American exceptionalism, which as a as a, an analytical or descriptive term, not sort of it, – it's not supposed to be chest thumping. There were things that came from American exceptionalism that were bad. America was always known as one of the most violent countries in the world because yeah. of our Harris. It's, it still is. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but 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 that was part of American exceptionalism too. Yeah, yeah, point. yeah. And um, we were more religious. You know, all the other developed nations 
were as they got more as they got richer, they got became less religious. We didn't for a long time, although that's starting to change. Yeah, I think that's and true. I would argue one of the reasons why it's starting to change is because um, much like nationalism, religion is now becoming a marker for political or, or ideological yeah. orientation rather than something that is supposed to be transpartisan or nonpartisan or prepartisan. And um, well, one of the things this all right, I'll get myself in trouble here. The um, you know Trump had some of his his biggest support, right? Like his most rock ribbed supporters. Uh, demographically would be unchurched or lightly churched evangelicals. Right. And, you know, when I saw that and when I was looking at those numbers and please audience, Jonah, uh, don't take this comparison (laughs) too far, but it reminded me of like Lutheran Prussia, which Uh is like, um, Oh man, the Lutherans are going to come for you now. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But, but like in many ways, like the, the, the practice of Lutheran faith was waning among many people in, in, in that region of Prussia and then later Germany. But the sense of like, we are still this like kind of nation within a nation, this like people set apart, um, you know, the salt of the earth Mm -hmm. was still strong. And it was, you know, it was a kind of a line into that was nationalism, Mm -hmm. like a a way to tap into those passions and that, uh, that imagination of, um, and that imagination also existed with demographic fear, right? Like mm-hmm. they feared being overwhelmed by Catholic Poles right. and other Catholic Slavs. Um, so, yeah, like I, I, I worry I see a similar thing happening among evangelicals that they're like losing their faith and then they're kind of giving the substitute faith of like – MAGA. Yeah, of, mm-hmm. of make America great again or – but they still have this this sense of we are a peep – a people within the people. Uh, well, that's a, that's a big chunk of Michael Burley's stuff, right? Where he talks about how so many of the conflicts in the last 200 years are really a continuation of the religious wars, um, yeah. just under different guise. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, this explains my hostility to Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's basically like an Episcopalian. I'm ready to fight. Um, I, well, unfortunately, I actually have to cut this short because I have a Column I got to put to bed, but um, everyone, I really, I cannot, I, I cannot recommend the book enough. It is not contra- this conversation, notwithstanding um, one long tirade of name checking um, various theoreticians of nationalism and whatnot. It is a very personal and 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 lovely and lovingly written um, memoir about one guy's you know experience with fatherhood and with. Um, fatherlessness, I think is the way to put it. Um, yeah. and thank you very much, Michael, for coming on. Oh, thanks so much for having me, John. It was great as always. Ring a ring a rosy as the light declines. I remember Dublin City in the rare old time. Raised on songs and stories, heroes of renown, the passing tales and glories that once was Dublin town, the hallowed halls and houses, the haunting children's rhymes, 
That once was Dublin City In the rare old times Ring a ring a rosy As the light declines um, Can you just start talking? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, stop. Don't, don't say that stupid ad again. Um, I know where you're going. I often will recite the old Citrus Hill Select orange juice commercial uh, jingle, and, it, and for some reason it triggers Jack. It doesn't trigger me. I'm just annoyed by it. Um, I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't to, you don't have to call me a snowflake. I didn't call you a snowflake. You just, yeah, you just said I was triggered by it. Yeah, that's, right. that's... Just, you know, cry more. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, that's...